there was this weird period where everybody kind of knew that uh, Bill Cosby had um, sexually assaulted a lot of women, but nobody really cared. And then Hannibal Burris, who was offended by Cosby's respectability politics, made it a regular part of his acts saying, this guy's a rapist. And like at every one of his shows, he'd say, this guy's a rapist. And then people just noticed, right? So, and, and, and it's not that like you had new facts, like there was this period where it was in the newspaper and it's not like, oh, everybody knew who knew people. And, you know, you guys are from LA, but trust me, I was at the Ivy Lab. No, this is something that was in the newspaper, right? You could Google it at the time. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Taboo Trades podcast, a show about stuff we aren't supposed to sell, but do anyway. I'm your host, Kim Kravick. My guest today is Gabriel Rossman, an associate professor of sociology at UCLA. Rossman studies cultural industries such as radio and film and economic sociology, including diffusion and disreputable exchange. He is interested in how people structure immoral exchanges like bribery to make them more subtle and therefore less obviously immoral. I've been an admirer of Rossman's work for a number of years and was so happy to have this opportunity to to talk to him about his research that I kept him longer than normal, and I've divided his podcast into two parts. In this part, we talk about sugar babies, college admissions, Bill Cosby, and Islamic finance. We also discuss a forthcoming book manuscript on the obfuscation of disreputable exchange that Gabriel generously shared. It's currently titled, How to Get Away with Paying Bribes, Buying Sex, and Selling Corpses. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's great to finally, you know, quote unquote, meet you in person. I've attempted to meet you a couple of times in person and vice versa, I know. So well, I'm glad to finally meet you on Zoom. Yeah, you too. So hi, Gabriel. Nice to meet you. My name is Autumn. I'm a 3L at UVA Law. So I can just start off with the first question. Um, So in the book manuscript, you say that we differ not only in what we find illegitimate to exchange, but why we feel that way or at least how we articulate our moral reasoning. Um, As you say, you're going to discuss later the broadly rights-based conception of Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic culture exaggerates the sense in which exchange morality is about exploitation. Um, (laughs) This is true for nobody so much as moral philosophers of exchange, who when they find occasion to condescend, um, affirming the institution's intuition, sorry, of ordinary people, insist on doing so from... Um, utilibot reasoning that nobody actually believes. So we've kind of read some more philosophy in this class, but not a lot. And I was wondering if you can elaborate on what the standard take is as you view it from moral philosophy and why it's deficient. Sure. So I am not a moral philosopher. I'm a a sociologist, Um, but the proverbial reviewer number two has told me that I, oh, you have to read Deborah Satz. And so being the dutiful author with an R&R, I turned it around and read Sats, and I was kind of horrified by what I saw um, because Sats has this argument in her book. I think the book is called Why Something Should Not Be For Sale. It is. Uh, Yeah. Thank you. Um, She talks about all these taboos, and then she's like, okay, well, people don't like prostitution. Why don't they like prostitution? And the obvious answer is because they think sex is special or they think prostitution is gross or something like that. And she's like, and that's not... That's against the rules. You're not allowed to say that. You're, you're not allowed to have that opinion. Or, you know, millions and millions of people do have that opinion, but 
you know, in fairness to her, she's not being a psychologist or a sociologist or an anthropologist. She's being a philosopher. And so she's allowed to play by those rules where she's allowed to say this argument is not cricket. You're, you're allowed to say that this argument, you know, we moral philosophers, at least as we moral philosophers who work within broadly the liberal tradition, you could easily imagine Thomas Aquinas saying something totally different. Um, we moral philosophers who work within the liberal tradition um, have a rule, which is that you're not allowed to say things are just gross. You have to say things are unfair or exploitative or hurt people. And, um, and then so she goes and she will say like, well, okay, so why can we say that prostitution is wrong? She's like, hmm, I got it. The reason prostitution is wrong is because it degrades women as a class. And even women who aren't directly, and let's say that one woman performs a sex act for money, it seems like she consents the, it, like, it's like that meme, like I consent, I consent, but they forgot to ask somebody else, except in this case, the somebody else isn't God. It's, uh, you know, women as a broad class, because she's making this argument that prostitution degrades women as a, as a class. But you can see she's really grasping for something. She's like, she's basically saying like, okay, we, I know that I have to be able to say that this um, archetypal illegitimate exchange is immoral, or otherwise I'm just a libertine who's saying anything goes. And she's working really hard to find out, <clears throat> find an argument that's fair, according to her rules. That's not how ordinary people think. or And I, I don't even think that's how Deborah Satz thinks. I think that's how Deborah Satz thinks at work. I think that's why she's good at what she does. But in terms of like, why she actually, assuming for the sake of argument, she opposes prostitution sincerely. Uh, I have no idea if she does or not, but let's just take that. I, I think she probably opposes it for much the same reasons everybody else does, but she knows that she has to build a case based on certain types of arguments or it doesn't count as moral philosophy. And of course, I'm talking to a, a law school class, right? And uh, what you guys are all doing is very closely analogous to, you know, liberal moral philosophy. In some ways, it's like apply in, you know, engineering is applied physics or engineering is applied chemistry. You guys are kind of like the engineers of moral philosophy, right? You <laughs> kind of have to take, you know, liberal moral philosophy and use it to build a case. And, you know, depending on who you ask, uh, it's it's not, it, it could or could not be appropriate to say that's just gross. Uh, you know, Scalia has some famous dissents where he's like, well, if we say this, then nobody's ever allowed to say anything's gross. And that's a valid reason in the law. Um, and obviously, you know, Scalia thought that that should be an appropriate view in the law, but plenty of other justices didn't. Um, anyway, so I think the best work on this sort of thing has been done by John Haidt, who I think was at UVA at one point, but is now at NYU. Yeah. And um, he has this fantastic article called The, uh, the Rational Tale. Uh, and uh, it's uh, the emotional dog and the rational tail, but tail is spelled uh, tail like a story, not just tail like a, uh, uh, you know, the appendage at the, mm -hmm. at the back of an animal. And his argument in rational tail is that, um, so he did this experiment where he or his grad student uh, read people a story that was really disgusting but carefully constructed so that nobody was hurt. So one of his stories was uh, an adult brother and sister are on vacation together. And I hope you can, well, actually, I kind of hope you can't see where this is going, but you probably can, right? An adult brother and sister who are, uh, you know, go on vacation together. And while they're there, completely sober and with complete consent, they say, hey, you know, it'd be a fun experience and something that would be interesting to try. Why don't we have sexual intercourse with each other? They do. She's already on the pill, but they use a condom anyway, just to be safe. 
And then, um, and then afterwards, uh, they agree not to talk about it, not to scandalize anyone with this story, but they feel like it brought them closer to, and not to do it again, but they feel like it brought them closer together as siblings. That's almost verbatim what Height reads to his uh, respondents. And then he says to them, okay, what did you think of that story? And almost everyone says, ugh, that's disgusting. This is horrible. And then, and then he asks this really devious question, which is why? And the interesting pattern is that if you go to people outside of the West or even uneducated people in the West, they'll say, did you miss the part where it was a brother and sister having sex? That's gross. That's wrong. It's against the Bible. It's whatever. Right. And they'll just say it's just wrong because it's wrong. Right. It violates the laws of nature. And uh, and, and they just basically give you a disgust based answer. And they're very comfortable with that. People like you or me. Right. That is to say, educated people in the West will generally say, hmm, I've never thought about why it's wrong. And you say, I got it. Their kids could be deformed. And then the, uh, you know, Hyde or his grad student would say, uh, but did you miss the part of the story where they were on two forms of birth control? So they couldn't possibly have, uh, you know, given birth to an inbred child. And then typically a person like you or me would say, damn, I didn't think of that. And then you say, and then they'll say, okay, so what do you think now? And they'll say, uh, so why do you think it's wrong? And it'll be, mm, I got it. Incest almost always involves coercion. And then the person will say, but remember, this is not a stepdad and a teenager. This is uh, two adults who made a decision completely sober. And the person will go, damn. And then eventually, people like you or me might very well say, I guess it's not wrong because nobody was hurt by it, right? So <laughs> in effect, moral philosophers are doing that, right? They're, they're a more extreme version of what uh, people like you and me do. but Height's argument is that even people like you and me do have moral intuitions. It's just that we uh, also have a form of moral reasoning that plays by very particular rules. And one of those rules is that we're allowed to give certain reasons, such as it's unfair or it's exploitative or it involves coercion. And we're not allowed to give other reasons, notably it's just gross or it just violates the laws of nature or it just offends God. There is a debate within law, I guess, about sort of what the causal direction here is between sort of things we prohibit and sort of the things we consider to be disgusting or just inherently wrong. So I guess in that story, the more sophisticated legal account would be that we actually want people to, we don't want people to be thinking through the reasons for mm -hmm. why things are wrong. We want people to internalize. So, you know, legal norms in particular, perhaps we can say the same thing about social norms. I'll leave that to the sociologists, but in any event, right? And so how does that fit into to yours or or hate's account? I think that the more sophisticated legal account would be, yes, this is exactly what we want people to respond. This is the point of these sorts of of norms is that we don't want people going through and saying, okay, it's wrong and we, you know, it's wrong in this instance, it's not wrong in this instance. Most of the time there would be harmful effects from this. And therefore, by having people sort of internalize a norm of moral unacceptability or grossness or disgust, that is a much more effective way of policing this particular norm. And in most countries, maybe all countries, law. Yeah, I, th I think that makes a lot of sense. And and the, the the way it works, too, by the way, is that one reason you might want something like that is that people are very good at using their moral reasoning to justify norm violations. Right. Right. So, so a simple example of that would be, let's say somebody's considering committing statutory rape. 
And they're like, oh, but you know, this 16 year old girl is so mature. Right. Right. And so they, they could be giving kind of a almost cliched uh, justification as to why this rule doesn't really apply in their case. But of course, that's why the rule applies is because right. we know that uh, people would, um, you know, uh, apply that kind of uh, justification. Yeah. And, and you know, Height would, I think if Height was on the phone instead of me, you'd be getting the same argument, right? He, he, he in fact, often describes moral reasoning as our internal lawyer, right? right. That, like the, the, the function of moral reasoning is to justify the things we already want, uh, you know, for whatever reason we have. Okay. I'm going to return it back to Autumn. There were, as you might expect, the group was interested in some of your stories about college admissions, which hit close to home. (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to start with Autumn and then Samantha has a question about that as well. Uh, Very close to home in my case. Uh, You know, we we were one Was UCLA one of the schools? It was mostly SC, which is a few miles away. But uh, UCLA did have one. Okay. Um, you know, where um, the parents bribed the women's soccer coach with Facebook stock. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Autumn. <laughs> yeah, so just going off the discussion about, you know, families donating major amounts to the school. Um, and it's obvious a lot of the times that's why their children are getting accepted to these schools because these families are donating very large amounts. Um but there's obviously other ways children of wealthy families are getting into these schools from, you know, coaches, like similar like you said, or maybe test prep coaches, um, maybe having the right extracurriculars, um, the right feeder schools to get into these colleges. Um, so aren't these also ways of kind of using money similar to the other way to beat the system um, and against those who just got solely accepted based on merit? Um, why do you think there's not more discomfort with those inequalities and the people just donating to the schools and why is it easier to pretend those criteria are more about merit? Yeah. So one of those reasons I'm going to take exception to, which is the varsity blues scandal, uh, which I I saw in the preview of the questions that a lot of you were thinking about and as you should, right. It's a high profile thing. The varsity blues scandal was not people bribing the university. The varsity blues scandal was uh, people bribing individual uh, members of the university almost always uh, athletics coaches, typically in women's sports. This is um, the one that most of the celebrities were caught up in. Is that exactly correct? exactly okay. so yeah. um, exactly so the the, the the celebrities and the and the other rich people. It, the typical pattern is a celebrity uh, bribes a women's athletics coach to give a recruited athlete spot to her daughter uh, to get them into USC. That, that, that was the typical pattern. And this went through a consultant named Rick Singer. Um, I don't consider that to be a case of obfuscation with the school um, because the it, that was really much more of a principal agent problem. So if we were to draw an analogy with something like selling citizenship, and you know, th- there are models where uh, you can actually buy citizenship from countries typically plenty of, poor, co- plenty of countries. Yeah. Very often poor countries that are, yep. have um, reciprocal travel rights with rich countries. Right. So for a long time, you could go to some Caribbean country, give a million dollars to the treasury of that uh, Caribbean country, and they would give you a British Commonwealth passport that you could use to travel to the UK or the European union or something like that. And typically if countries do this too aggressively, they get kicked out of those travel um, areas. Anyway, so so that would be an example of simply buying a resource. Um, 
in the varsity blues case, this is more analogous to you go to the passport office and you bribe the clerk, right? You're not buying something from the, uh, I, I'm just going to pick on the Bahamas, right? You're not buying something from the Bahamas. You're, you're buying something from the guy you bribed at the bah- Bahamanian consulate, which is very different. Um, now, it might be that you also have an obfuscated exchange with the dude at the Bahamian consulate. And in fact, some people did have uh, obfuscated exchanges with these coaches. But fundamentally, these this was a principal agent problem where the coaches were not acting as um, you know good agents for the interests of the university as a whole. But, but we can put that aside. Um, so with all these other cases, I mean, the interesting thing is um, the, the modern admission system came in in a large part. Um, in order to avoid an even more distasteful system. Um, and it is obfuscated, but not obfuscated originally in terms of payment. So Jerry Carable has a very good book called The Chosen, uh, which is a deliberate pun because it, in his usage of the title, The Chosen refers both to Jews and to people who are chosen to be admitted to Ivy League schools, where he talks about the origins of the modern admission system in the 1920s. Um, for elite education. And uh, this was characteristic of private schools and then it spread to public schools after the Grutter decision. The, the, the system, what you basically had in the 20s is with the introduction of the, it used to be that uh, Ivy League schools mostly worked on a basis of A, feeder schools, and B, who could afford to pay the tuition. And then with the introduction of the SAT, you saw a lot of working class Jewish kids getting in. Uh, you had kind of um, Gentile flight from Columbia University, where Columbia University got so many Jews that uh, Gentiles stopped going there. And the other Ivy Leagues looked at that at, in horror and said, how are we going to prevent Gentile flight? And so they instituted quotas on Jews. This was very unpopular and very distasteful and seen as like not gentlemanly. And so they, f- they figured out, well, what's a more subtle way that we can basically accomplish this? And they said, okay, well, we're going to have regional diversity quotas. So um, you get points, if uh, not just like points, but right, we're going to give preferences to people from Wyoming. And we're going to give preferences to people who, uh, you know, do obscure sports that they don't teach at Bronx science, but they do teach at Exeter. Right. So you're going to have um, basically the kind of well-roundedness criteria. And so that's the origins of the modern admission system. Of Gabriel, do the because one thing that I have always found a little bit mysterious is in connection with the varsity blues scandal, actually, is why, you know, I understand recruiting somebody for a revenue sport. I yeah. don't really understand the allocation of slots for things like crew or some of the other things that, that were actually used. Is this a holdover from that? It means people have, people have explained it as saying, well, you know, these are sports that, that rich people play and therefore they'll give money back to the school. But that just suggests that we need a proxy for something like being rich. And it seems to me that we don't need a proxy for that. There are other mechanisms that we can use to figure that out. So, I mean, is that part of why, is this a holdover from that or no? That's a, that's a very good question. And, and kind of a related question would be not just why did we have it five years ago, but why do we still have it after the varsity blues scandal? Right. I yeah, mean, right. I, I kind of expected uh, varsity blues to really discredit college sports and in particular to have universities have much more uh, oversight over uh, recruited athletes slots, right? Because the current way is that the coaches basically get a certain uh, allocation where they're basically allowed to say, as long as they meet the NCAA qualifications, I want that one, that one, that one, right? Right. Um, 
And so it's this weird system where the admissions office controls admissions of most people, but recruited athletes are controlled by the coaches. Yeah. Um, and varsity blues basically showed why that's a bad idea. Yeah, that, you right. know, if you, if you give this valuable resource to people, sometimes they're going to abuse that valuable resource. Um, that largely seems not to have happened. I mean, you had some coaches fired, you had some athletics directors fired, uh, our athletics director at UCLA got turned over. They, the, the message was all very much like we thank this person for their long service. Yeah. Maybe that's the true story. Maybe they were fired because they hadn't spotted that the women's soccer coach was taking bribes. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. Um, well, we've got yeah. some questions about sports later in the podcast. Yeah. And of course, the NCAA has bigger fish to fry these days, yeah. I guess, is perhaps part of the answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but in terms of like why. So I thought when you started asking a question, I was going to say, why is it uh, why do women's sports, which was mostly yeah. what was this issue at Varsity Blues? I would assume women's. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I would assume that's something to do with Title IX, that if you're going yeah. to give resources. There's extra money floating around there because of Title IX, I'm yeah. guessing. Yeah. Yeah. That if you're going to give resources to men's sports, you have to give them to women's yeah. sports. Yeah. But um, in terms of like why, but why the non-revenue sports as well as the revenue sports, that's that's a very good question. I honestly don't know the answer, right? Because yeah. it seems like you could just, I mean, it, to a first approximation, uh, unless you're at like Princeton where people really do care about crew, who cares if the crew team wins? Right. Right. So, yeah, it's, so, it's so mystery why not just admit the person who got a 4.0 and, you know, did the Intel science fair and whatever in high school? Or, or if you're trying to figure out if you're trying to admit rich people, then just admit the rich. Like, I mean, we have other mechanisms for figuring out which of our applicants are, are rich. So, yeah. But, but to go back to Autumn's original question, um, you know, I, I, why do we allow these deviate? Why are we more comfortable with uh, some deviations from merit than others? I mean, you could take the other answer. The other way to think of it is like, why do we care about merit in the first place? I mean, yeah. There, there was a time when school admission <clears throat> was not based on merit. And that, that itself was and around 100 years ago. We saw, you know, the birth of the SAT and we saw this historic, uh, you know, and, and also not just the, the birth of the SAT, but also schools dropping their uh, Greek requirement. Um, because, you know, in the 19th century, you basically had to know Greek and Latin to get into a really good school. And most public schools at the time taught Latin, but not Greek. And so in effect, that was only preppies were preppies were the only people who learned both Latin and Greek. And so if you made Greek a requirement, that was effectively saying we only want people from prep schools. So there were a variety of changes, you know, relaxing this Greek requirement, adding the SAT that made things more meritocratic. That was controversial at the time, yeah. you know, so I, I don't think we can necessarily, if we're going to take like a big picture social constructionist view of it, we have to take... Uh, we have to problematize the idea of merit in of itself. Now, I mean, I, as much as any other 21st century American, uh, you know, basically do take merit as the ideal and see other things as deviations from that of like, you know, why should this matter? Why should, you know, the gift matter? Uh, you know, but the large giving, that's probably the clearest case because it's, it's a case of, um, you know, the institution, um, you know, being able to thrive. Um, I, I recently heard a, a podcast with uh, Russ Roberts uh, and he was saying that, um, and I, I believe his guest was saying, it was either him or his guest. Uh, one of them was saying the job of a Dean is to ensure the continuity of the institution's values. The job of the college president is to ensure the continued existence of the institution. <laughs> and, you know, the, this kind of 
shift from pure merit to saying like, well, you know, this Kushner kid has a lot of money. Yeah. You know, that that's, I mean, it's hard to say, except in some kind of like abstract deontological ideal of merit, it's hard to say that Harvard made a bad call that way. You know, yeah. it's, they, they did get a lot of money from the Kushner family and, you know, they were able to direct that to other resources. And for that matter, Kushner himself ended up being a very powerful person and, it's a big part of the job of an Ivy League university to make sure that the next generation of elites are people who are their alumni. Right. Uh, so, Samantha, to the extent that your question hasn't been addressed in the prior discussion, do you want to follow on from here? Um, my name is Samantha Spindler, and I'm a 2L at UVA. Um, and something uh, that I was curious about is ostracism. Um, and that seems to be a bigger concern than legal punishment when it comes to taboo activities. And does this mean in order for an activity to leave the taboo sphere, reform should be focused on public opinion um, and legality will follow after public opinion? Because, for example, the parents in the Varsity Blue scandal were ostracized for securing their children fake spots on sports teams. They lost jobs and other opportunities. And I was also wondering if this ostracism makes the parents brokers because they were the ones that seemed to be blamed, even though their children were their children were the ones receiving admission to the schools. Well, at least in some cases, the children do seem to have been um, innocent of the knowledge that they and and some of the parents actually went to fairly great lengths to make sure that their kids didn't know how the scam was working. Others of them, it's like, hey, I, you know, I, I set up this uh, canoe in the driveway in front of a green screen. Go sit in it for a minute. You know, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious what's going on there, right? But you know, um, the but in terms of like, it, it's interesting to think of this as like a reform effort. Um, but if you're not thinking of it as like, okay, let's say that we have the uh, Let's say that the taboo question is the coalition to legalize paid uh, or to legitimize paid college admissions, right? So let's say that you have some NGO, it's a 501c3 or 501c4 or something, and you're, you have this moral crusade to increase that. Uh, so one thing would be like you'd want to pass a law saying that it's okay to, for universities to accept uh, to openly and not as gift exchange, which is the main way that it works. And by the way, I highly recommend Golden's Price of Admission. Um, he was a Wall Street Journal reporter uh, who wrote a book on this. And he, one of the very strong themes that you see in Golden's Price of Admission is that development always works as gift exchange. Um, and the, no matter how close to the line they get, they always stay on that side of the line of never promising like, okay, here's the price. They always say like, oh, this is the usual donation. You know, and people listening to the MP3 can't see, but I just did like this very stage wink. Uh, like a, <laughs> you know... A British pantomime or something. Um, so, but but you know, as you're suggesting, that wouldn't be enough, right? Because we can think of things that are legal, um, but are still distasteful. So, let's say hypothetically that um, you know I, I were to regale you with a personal story about how. Uh, last summer I went to the, well, last summer would be a bad example, right? But it doesn't matter because the story didn't actually happen, right? So this, this story takes place in an alternate universe with no COVID. So uh, last summer I went to the Greek islands and I didn't want to go alone. So I put an ad on seeking arrangements and, uh, and I got, you know, saying like, you know, I like, a, you know, a, you know, attractive woman between the age of 25 and 35 to, you know, come, you know, who would be interested in accompanying me to the Greek islands. 
And then I got several responses and I said, okay, uh, you, I'd like to invite you to come with me. We meet at the airport. We go to the Greek islands and it's understood that when we get to the Greek islands, we'll have sex. So let's say I told you the story. Uh, I mean, and, and let's say something that's not like out of context, like there, <laughs> it would make sense why I, I'm not, you know, telling you the story. I have to imagine that no matter how, what you think of sex work or what you think of transactional sex, you'd probably say like, that guy's kind of a creep, you know, like, I, I, I feel like you'd have to, you know, the, like that would be the very strong uh, moral intuition you have. I mean, you, you might very well say, I don't think he should be in prison. I don't think he, and you might even say, and you probably would say, I don't think he should lose his job. But you, you also might say, I'm not going to invite him over for Thanksgiving dinner. You know, like this is, you know, I'm not going to introduce him to my uh, to to my single cousin, right? I mean, you're going to say this is not somebody who I, I think has good values, and this is somebody who's kind of sketch, you know. So, um, I, and I'm not sure what you do about that, right? Like, what is the process of making it? I, I do think, as both you and Kim were suggesting earlier. Um, you know, part of it is that there is a signaling function of law. You know, I, I know that you guys have a special term for that, right? But basically the idea that law signals the morality of the society. And so just legalizing something in of itself could make it less morally taboo. Um, but then there's just going to be a long process of habituation where if people get used to seeing it and it becomes more normalized and it's just like, you know, after so maybe the first time you hear this story about um, transactional sex involving travel, you think like what a creep. But after the tenth time you hear it, you're just like, oh, this is just something do people do. You know, it's a good way for you know middle aged affluent men to get companionship and you know attractive young women to see the world, and you know that's cool. You know, it's just. You know, Gabriel, returning yeah. back to your initial discussion we were having about donations and colleges and how it's always, you know, and, and for charities more generally, right, always sort of in the gift realm, regardless of how close it comes to the line. I mean, I think in, in partial, at least evidence for, for your statement here is I think that um, there have been a variety of legal changes that treat donations much more like a typical any bargain for exchange yeah. um, in terms of enforceability and contract law. Um, and it has not done anything, I think, to move us away from thinking from from still having this as a cultural and social category of being separate from a, a standard marketplace transaction, even as the law is beginning to treat it more and more um, mm -hmm. like a standard marketplace transaction. So mm -hmm. of course, I, perhaps most people aren't as finely tuned to the law of charitable donations as, as some of us are, but yeah. Well, I mean, and a lot of the, the legal changes or um, things that are effectively legal changes, even if they come through some type of accrediting body or professional society, uh, take the form of reporting requirements. So yeah. um, pharma detailing was completely devastated by reporting requirements where, you know, you're still allowed to, you know, give a doctor an invitation to a Hawaiian golf resort where, you know, to present findings at a conference, yeah. uh, but the conference only meets for an hour a day and, you know, it's well after the best tea times. Um, yeah. But you just have to report it now and it goes yeah. in a database and then everybody knows that doctor's basically being bribed. Yeah. Um, well, and the, I, the reason I find the contract cases kind of interesting myself is because 
prior to some of some of the changes are statutory and some of them are just common law changes. But prior to that, the way to fit them, you know, the way to make them enforceable was in fact to argue that it was basically a quid pro quo, uh-huh. that it was completely transactional, just like any other market trans. Sure, I gave money to the school, but I did it with the expectation, you know, usually it wasn't, you know, admission for my child, right? Something yeah. else that's taboo, but usually it was, you know, but I only did it because, you know, I wanted them to name a building after me or because I wanted them to do this or I wanted them to do that. And and now many jurisdictions have just sort of said, yeah, we're not going to delve into that. It's just going to be enforceable if it's in writing and, you know, mm-hmm. done with some. Mm-hmm. But in any event, given your focus, especially in the empirical piece on transact the transactional nature of, of things and the way people view it, I found it to be kind of interesting. Yeah, so so on this, uh, Zelizer's purchase of intimacy is, is really yeah. good. And there yeah. was a version of this that was published. If you, if you only have patients for 10 pages, read the version that was published in Law and Social Inquiry. And if you have patients for three, 400 pages, read the book. Um, but, you know, Zelizer is a sociologist, but she, her main method is going through old court cases. Yep. And, I, I love her treatment of those cases, by the way. Yeah. Some of the students have read that not in this class, but in the class I taught last semester. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I assigned them the chapter on coupling and I, I, it's great. Yeah. Anyway, I was just going to say relevant to your point that, yep. um, you know, she, she generally finds that, you know, so first of all, the law changed in that when, um, you know, seduction by promise of marriage uh, ceased to be a crime, you know, you saw the rise of the engagement ring. And then you you also saw uh, the rise of the norm that depending on who breaks off an engagement, the, you know, the ring has to be returned or the ring can be kept, which was effectively a way to kind of turn this into, you know, in effect, the, the ring becomes almost a deposit on a woman's virginity. Yeah. Um, and and she talks about how courts would actually enforce that. Um, and uh, I, I think a main theme in her book is how to frame and understand that courts could be very kind of legal realists in how to um, understand and interpret and exchange based on who they wanted to win. Right. So there's these weird stories about like, you know, some creepy old rich guy who had, you know, two sisters as mistresses and he yeah. kept them on an allowance and then, um, and then it very often, a lot of her cases actually involve with who has to pay the tax. Yeah. A lot of them were tax <laughs> cases. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and it's funny because I, I know for a fact, actually, that she, she went into it thinking that a lot of the cases would be about the man act. Um, but she ended up finding all these tax cases. Yeah. Um, and, you know, then the courts would basically just decide based on who they thought was more sympathetic, whether this was a gift or whether it was uh, an income payment. And, you know, even though something looked a lot like a job in some of the cases, the courts might say it's a gift because they didn't want the the mistress to have to pay the, the tax. They wanted they said it was a gift because they wanted the old guy to have to pay the tax. Right. Interesting. We have a couple of questions about the mechanics of obfuscation, and I'm going to start with Alex. Sure. Hi, Gabriel. I'm Alex, uh, 3L here at UVA. And uh, I was wondering how obfuscation really works. You mentioned this um, obfuscation is, you know, you take these two functionally similar transactions and you make them reputably different uh, through some sort of structuring. Um, But it seems like there are some intrinsic limitations on that. Like when we were talking about uh, the physicians accepting gifts from pharmaceutical companies. Um, you said in the paper that that's relatively tolerable uh, compared to open kickbacks. Yeah. Uh, is it always the case that there are those limitations? And when we're talking about obfuscation, are we talking about hiding the transaction so that people don't realize it's going on? Or are we actually transforming it into something that's a little more palatable? Mm-hmm. 
So I think um, to take the second one, I think it's not just an issue of hiding it. That sometimes in the process of hiding it, you have to transform it. So let's say that let's take a, an example of um, a taboo transaction of prostitution. And those of you who have studied sex work know that there's all different forms of sex work, and that generally speaking, the more ephemeral and the more focused on sex it is, the cheaper it is, and the more enduring and the more focused on emotions and other types of more cultural, you know, basically stuff that happens outside the bedroom, the more expensive it is. Um, and so we we see this, and if you read like the. Uh, uh, I'm forgetting the scholar's first name, but if you read Dank, Dank has this fantastic work on um, sex work, um, D-A-N-K. Anyway, but you, you see that there's this huge price range where in a lot of cities, uh, street prostitution will very often have a median price of $50, whereas escorts may charge you know $4,000. So you see this huge price range. And of course, escorts are, you know, it's, that's not a 20 minute interaction. That's a, a four or five hour interaction. You know, and also there's more emotion and uh, cultural performance involved with it. Um, anyway, so, but then you say like, okay, well, then we have this, uh, this social institution of sugar daddyism where we can obfuscate the performance of prostitution. But one of the interesting things is that it's impossible to have sugar daddyism that replicates uh, street prostitution. You can't have, um, there's no such thing as sugar daddyism where as a gift exchange, you get in my car, we drive to a dark place, we have sex, and then I drop you off 20 minutes later. You just can't do that as sugar daddyism. Sugar daddyism can only replicate uh, what sex in sex work would be called a girlfriend experience. So it, it, it transforms it by nature. There's certain, it, it, and it forces it by nature to take on this more uh, embedded form. Uh, you know, this, this different form, there's certain aspects of it you can't do. Uh, Huang's research on um, uh, Kimberly Huang at uh, University of Chicago, her research on um, real estate bribery in Vietnam, uh, she shows that there's all sorts of ways that basically different uh, real estate investors use different strategies because they're based on their cultural familiarity, where you know, Vietnamese investors will use gift exchange because they they understand they're culturally close enough to the Vietnamese public officials that they understand how to tactfully bribe somebody with a gift. And also they have the patience to develop a relationship over many years. Um, American investors in Vietnam are, you know, totally lack the cultural tact to be able to bribe someone effectively with a gift. And they also lack the patience and they're also terrified of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And so American investors in Vietnam will um, typically hire a local fixer and then not ask too many questions about what the local fixer is doing, which of course is brokerage. So you, you see kind of a, the obfuscation can change the nature of the exchange, not just hide it. Now, in terms of how does the obfuscation have its effect, um, this is something that um, Shulky and I did in our vignette study, um, which I know you guys didn't read, um, 
I'm not saying you should have, right? Uh, but, you know, um, everyone but, should. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, you know. So, um, in our 2018 American Sociological Review, Shilke and I uh, presented several vignettes where we had, you know, a story about commercial bribery, a story about political bribery, and a story about baby selling. And then we uh, randomly assigned people to hear one of uh, it was five versions of the story. So we had the four obfuscation structures. Oh, no, six versions. There was the four obfuscation structures. There was the, um, uh, there was an overt quid pro quo. And then there was somebody just asked nicely for the taboo good or the non-market good, but they don't offer anything in return, right? And so we call that version the appropriate version. And what we found is that in our vignettes, it was almost always the case that um, the people preferred the appropriate version right? They preferred that somebody just asked without offering something in exchange for the non-market good, you know, may I please adopt your baby? Um, and they dislike the quid pro quo version. I will give you $10,000 if you let me adopt your baby. Um, and then the obfuscated versions were in the middle, although a little bit closer to the quid pro quo. So um, I will forgive this $10,000 debt if you let me adopt your baby. Um, and, and then uh, and this part, I really have to credit to uh, Oliver uh, Schilke, my co-author, uh, because he's he's much better at this sort of thing than I am. But um, we, or specifically Oliver, did a mediation analysis where we asked people, you know, what aspect do you think about this? What aspect do you think about this? What aspect do you think about this? Okay, now what do you think about these people overall, right? Because the, the main dependent variable is basically, we asked four different ways, do you think these people are a bunch of creeps, right? And and then, but we also ask this question of like, do you think everybody does this? Do you think this is common? Do you think that there's a transaction involved here, right? So we have these three, uh, what a social psychologist would call mediators. And, uh, and we showed that the, the relationship between off, the effect of obfuscation works through these mediators. Um, you know, that, you know, the attributional opacity, right? Basically making it seem like it's less of this happens because of this. Uh, you know, the, the sense that everybody does it, all these things that we measured as mediators do explain a big part of how obfuscation works. Now, that said, um, I think the study was somewhat conservative in the effect of in measuring the effect of obfuscation, because the one thing we couldn't measure is that you just never put the pieces together. Right. We're giving people roughly uh, four paragraphs of text, less than a page of text. And, and the, so the facts are all there. And in real life, obfuscation, if done well, the facts are not all there, right? You shouldn't know that this celebrity uh, paid a soccer coach. Like if I tell you a story, this celebrity paid a soccer coach and then, or, or this celebrity paid Rick Singer's bullshit foundation, and then Rick Singer's foundation paid this soccer coach, and then the soccer coach let in the celebrity's daughter. And I'm going to say, you know, do you think that's sketchy? You say, Yeah. You know, but the thing is, is that you didn't think that until the FBI investigated it and, and got a snitch with a wire to get that all on tape and, and then put it in the U S attorney for, you know, Los Angeles, um, you know, and then put it in the newspaper, right. Once it's in the newspaper story and you read in the New York times that this celebrity did this on this date that you're like, Oh yeah, that's totally sketchy. But, um, the day before that, you didn't know that, right? And maybe you could even go through some type of public records disclosure. You could find the 990 filings for Rick Singer's foundation and you could see, okay, you know, 
Rick Singer got this major donation from this person. Rick Singer made this huge outlay to this other person. And, um, and then you could also check the, you know, the, the USC student freshman roster and see that the celebrity or even look on Instagram and see that the student is now matriculating at USC. But you're not going to put those pieces together. These are just going to seem like two disconnected facts in the huge realm of facts. And so I think part of what um, obfuscation does that's almost impossible to measure an experiment is it just takes the facts and it scatters them all over the universe. You know, and so it just makes it very hard to put these facts together. Um, and that, think, by the way, Gabriel, yeah, do ahead. you think do you think brokerage is different potentially from your other? Uh, I know that you you had different findings for brokerage and pawning, and I'm wondering yeah. if part of is uh, of it is why brokerage seems more oriented towards making it difficult for people to put the pieces together rather than to sort of say to ourselves, even perhaps this is something different than yeah, in, in the, in the mediation study, brokerage and bundling were less effective than gift and pawning. Yeah. So the, so the two things that involve a, a delayed reciprocity, yeah. uh, you know, which is gift and pawning, uh, those were more effective in the study. And yeah, I, I agree with your interpretation that uh, the way that brokerage and bundling work is they hide the facts. They, they make it difficult to see, right? You know that the congressman bought the defense contractor's house and you know that the, the, the congressman uh, wrote a letter to the army on behalf of the defense contractor. I might be mixing up a couple of different cases there, uh, but you don't necessarily know that these two things are related because lots of people buy houses yeah. and lots of congressmen do constituent service. And now if you see them all on the same page, you're like, hmm, you know, but if if they're just like, you know, if you just look at all the real estate records from San Diego County and you look at all the letters sent out by uh, members offices in the House, you're never going to put these two facts together. Right. right and so. Right. Um, and, and that that, by the way, is an example of bundling. Um, but once it's all put together, it's it's totally obvious that this yeah. you know defense contractor overpays by seven hundred thousand dollars for the congressman's house and then immediately puts it back on the market. And this congressman writes a letter on behalf of the defense contractor. That's that's obvious what's going on. But. Only once you have the facts put together. And by the way, one of the things I think is really interesting about this is the process of accusation. That you know, um, there's a whole developing sociology of scandal, and one of the points in the sociology of scandal is that scandals aren't about moral transgressions; they're about moral accusations. Mm-hmm. And that, and this this transcends. I think this absolutely applies to obfuscated. Uh, disreputable exchange and disreputable exchange period, but it applies to all sorts of things. So a very simple example would be there was this weird period where everybody kind of knew that uh, Bill Cosby had um, sexually assaulted a lot of women, but nobody really cared. And then Hannibal Burris, who was offended by Cosby's respectability politics, made it a regular part of his acts saying, this guy's a rapist. And like at every one of his shows, he'd say, this guy's a rapist. And then people just noticed. Right. So and, and and it's not that like you had new facts, like there was this mm-hmm. period where it was in the newspaper. Like, and it's not like, oh, everybody knew who knew people. And, you know, you guys are from L.A., but trust me, I was at the Ivy Lab. No, this is something that was in the newspaper. Right. You could Google it at the time. Mm-hmm. But it was this weird period where people kind of were aware of this fact, but they just didn't care. And it was like the it, but focusing attention on it drew it. The classic example in the sociology literature is uh, Oscar Wilde, where I mean, you'd have to be blind in Victorian England, not to know that Oscar Wilde was gay, but there was this weird period where nobody cared 
until he seduced the son of the Marquis de Queenbury. And then Queenbury made it his mission to get revenge on Wilde for seducing his son. And he made it, and he just constantly accused Wilde of being gay. And then that created the scandal, right? So it wasn't the fact or the revelation of the facts, even it was the focused process of accusation. And, you know, you can see this in a lot of these uh, obfuscation cases where, you know, kind of a data problem is that I'm only aware of these things once it becomes scandalous. Like I basically, I'm not aware of the obfuscations that worked. Right. I'm right. only uh, I'm I'm only aware of the obfuscations that failed. That failed. Reading your um, vignette piece and and putting it together because we had been talking about Viviana's work on this. I wanted to ask you about the relationship between money, what I'm going to call sort of transactionalism, like the ex- the explicitness of the quid pro quo and certainty of the exchange, and maybe those last two are the same. There's been a lot of focus in the literature on money and the corrupting effect of money and and not as much except from from you and and and, and Viviana I think on this transactional aspect and the certainty aspect have we focused too much on on money and not on the certainty aspect I, I'm not sure if my question is is no, making no, sense. it's 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 funny you ask about certainty because uh Shilke and I are writing another paper and we're right in the middle of data collection and uh, the new paper is on trust Mm-hmm. And so we basically, as part of the, we we tell people a story of like, hey, here's this guy, you really need something from him, and um, do you want to bribe him or not? And then we have, and then we also introduce the the thing that's random. So that's constant across all the studies. Yeah. And, and then the thing that, uh, but we make it a form of bribe where, in theory, the guy could just take the money and walk away, right? It's yeah. not an enforceable bribe. It's a gift exchange bribe. And, and then we also do a version with brokerage and that works too. But, um, but the thing we do is we say, this guy is really trustworthy or this guy's not trustworthy, right? We, we say this guy has a reputation for always do, doing right by his partners, mm-hmm. or this guy has a reputation for screwing people over. Mm-hmm. And we find that there's a very strong effect that people are much more likely to bribe the guy who has a good reputation for being loyal mm-hmm. and uh, much less likely to um, uh, bribe the guy who has a reputation for being disloyal. Mm-hmm. And so th- that, that would fit pretty directly in with the certainty thing that like a, a bribe to somebody who's known for being loyal, that's, that's money in the bank. Yeah. Uh, it, whereas, you know, a bribe to somebody who's disloyal, it's like, well, he's just going to keep the money and then not give me what I want. Certainty of the return seemed to be relevant in the college admissions cases. You know, yeah. one of the things that sort of came out in our discussion was in all of the cases, you know, not everybody who donates gets their kid in. It increases the probability and it yeah. presumably increases in a in a manner that, you know, the more you donate, the higher the probability is. That's but, right. but it's not certain. And one of the things that our discussion reminded me of is that that was an issue, that was the analysis in a lot of the cases that Viviana discusses in her chapter. Now, perhaps the courts are just striving to find a mechanism for distinguishing the cases and finding the, quote, right person um, Mm -hmm. liable, as you say. But the way in which they did it was to make a big distinction between the certainty of sex in exchange for payment um, and just sort of an expectation or hope of it. And I sort of wondered whether 
that gets lost sometimes in our focus on the way in which money corrupts. And so I don't know whether, especially after you've, you have looked at this aspect of it so much by varying it through the vignettes that I, I didn't know whether you thought that we were losing sight of something important by focusing just on the money. No, that's a fantastic point. Right. Uh, And in fact, you see it well beyond the kind of transactional sex thing, which is, you know, in some ways the easiest case to discuss. You also see this in Islamic finance. Uh, Islamic scholars are pretty uniform in saying that something isn't Reba if the the person who in normal terms would be the creditor takes on some risk. Mm -hmm. There has to, and this gets very finely grained. Sometimes it can be kind of quantum risk. But, you know, so like if if we have it, let's say that you and I are both very pious Muslims and you want to buy, you want to borrow some money from me. And so we work out this, uh, I think this is called by al Ina. It might be one of the other, maybe it's tar work. I, I, I confuse the different institutions, but let's say we work out this scam or basic I mean, scams, wrong way to put it, but like we work out this institution, which is traditionally approved by Islamic scholars, but has been increasingly rejected since the rise of fundamentalism in the 1950s. But let's say we do this traditional approach where we say, okay, what we're going to do is I'm going to buy a million dollars worth of copper. And then I'm going to sell the copper. And then you're going to buy the copper from me. And then we're going to sell it back to each other, but your payment's going to be delayed by a year. And I'm going to buy the copper and you're going to and sell it to you. And then you're going to sell it back to me a 10th of a second later. Yeah. And And then, you know, this really looks like we're just finding an incredibly convoluted way to have a fixed points on the principal uh, interest loan, which most Islamic scholars would say would be RIBA, except most Islamic scholars would say this is not RIBA, because if the market for copper crashes in that tenth of a second, you know, I'm liable for that risk. And so as long as I have some risk, that that would still yep. count. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think, and then also uh, another thing, especially appropriate for UVA audience, is uh, the the Tulloch lottery can be a good model for understanding, uh, you know, kind of the expectation or the hope or the risk, but no, not the enforceable promise of reciprocity. Mm-hmm. So uh, Gordon Tulloch, who was at, I think he was at UVA in the sixties. Yeah. Um, he had this model of bribery where he said, you know, bribery is not enforceable. And the way bribery typically works is that you give effectively as a gift exchange process. But the way that you model that is that you're effectively buying tickets in a lottery. And, you know, typically it would be the way of, let's say that um, I'm the steel lobby. And so I want a high price for steel and Kimberly's the uh, automobile and washing machine lobby. And so she wants a low price for steel. And so I'm lobbying for a higher tariff on steel and she's lobbying for a lower tariff on steel. Both of us make a bunch of campaign contributions, you know, find out what the congressman's favorite charity is, you know, find excuses to throw a lot of business at the congressman's wife's consulting business, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, And then push comes to shove. There's eventually a vote on should there be a high tariff on steel. And Tulloch would argue that the probability of the steel tariff passing is proportional to the volume of bribes that I paid and the volume of bribes that Kimberly paid. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can, the simpler form of this is the all pay auction, but where it's strictly deterministic that like whoever paid more bribes ends up getting the law. 
Um, but the, the more probabilistic version, which I think is more accurate, is mm -hmm. the Tulloch lottery. And so that, that's a very good model for understanding uh, how these things can work probabilistically. Okay.